1: so is it just me, or did the uh, world get a whole lot more interesting over the weekend? Okay, I want to share an experience with you, and you may think I'm nuts. In fact, I may be nuts for sharing this so early on in the program, because this uh, for those of you listening for the first time, you might be okay. <laughs> this guy's certifiable. I'm just going to quietly ease toward the exit. But I get a I get a sense, and I'm no I know I'm not alone in this that uh, that there was a huge shift that took place. In the state of our world over the weekend. Now, of course, the elephant in the room is, oh, yes, the Israeli Palestinian fighting, and oh, man, you know, that's, you know, biblical prophecy being fulfilled. And I get it. I get it. That's on a lot of people's radar screens. It's, well, I'm going to be talking about how there's a lot of media manipulation going on right now. But before we get to that, I want to share something with you that happened to me last week that has just had me puzzling and, and, and thinking about this because I'm really not sure what to make of it. And it goes back to last Tuesday. That was my father-in-law's birthday. And we we all got together for a, a family dinner at a local Mexican restaurant. And as we're standing there, it's, it's right around sunset. Okay, so the sun is starting to go. It's that beautiful golden hour, you know, where where the light is just gorgeous. There were quite a few low clouds. We'd had some stormy weather, you know, the previous few days. So there's a fair amount of clouds. The, the fall colors were starting to come out very brightly on a number of trees there in the area where we were. I mean, it was just, it's hard to describe how beautiful that picture was. And as I stood there in the doorway of this little restaurant uh, getting ready to go inside, I turned around and looked out there and something hit me. This thought or, or maybe it was just it was a feeling that hit me as I sta- sat there reflecting on not just the, the incredible beauty of the sunset and the clouds and the leaves and so forth. But I swear to you, I felt a shift. And it's very hard to describe. OK, so I'm, I'm doing my best to put this into words, but. It wasn't just a shift in the seasons, although certainly that, that was part of it. But it was a sense that something in this world has shifted, and from this point on, things are going to get very different. Now, I know that can sound ominous, and, oh, boy, here we go. Here goes the doom and gloom. It wasn't scary. It wasn't like, oh, man, you know, (laughs) the four horsemen of the apocalypse have been unleashed. Just a powerful impression that, that something significant was shifting and that the way that we were seeing the world right at that moment was not going to be the norm moving forward. Now, I don't know what it means, okay? I'm not a prophet. I'm not trying to tell you, and therefore, you know, when, when war broke out in Israel, <laughs> I, I saw it coming. I didn't. Allegedly, Israel didn't either. But this much I do know. The world took a very dangerous turn over the weekend, and, and it's the, the, the conflict, the actual fighting that's taking place is a part of it, but a bigger part is what gives people feelings of power, and specifically, I'm talking about that feeling of being enemy-driven and united by that certainty and righteousness that oh, they are the enemy, and you can, you can see this so clearly. I've had to get off social media for a good part of the weekend just because the, the lines are being drawn so clearly. And yet, I think they're false lines. I think it's a false dichotomy. Now, why would I say that? Well, I'm going to borrow a quote from, actually, from the article of the day that, I, that I'm going to share. Uh, I normally say this for the last segment, but I'm going to point you toward it just because I, I think this is worth your attention. The Good Citizen has a marvelous Substack. You should subscribe. You should read it, and you should subscribe. But what I love best is that the good citizen has not only a way with words and some, some very good wry humor in, in talking about serious things, but um, a, just a great sense of being able to cut through the propaganda, cut through the distortion and the spin to get to the root of what's going on. And I'll tell you, what we're facing right now, it's, it's not looking pretty. And there's a quote here that I think describes it. An enemy defines us, empowers us, and bails us out to offer other to offer justifications rather for whatever we require at any time we seek it. Do you understand what's being said there? An enemy defines us, empowers us, and bails us out to offer justifications for whatever we require any time we seek it. In other words, you create an enemy so dangerous you can pretty much just uh, set aside any concerns over what's right and what's wrong. Oh, those are trifling considerations. This is war. We can't be slowed down by decisions about, you know, what's ethical and what isn't. And by the way, this happens not just, you know, on on the political left. It it happens a lot on the political right. Witness, you know, the, the war on terror that followed 9-11. They ran through the Patriot Act. They ran through 20 years of wars, undeclared wars being fought everywhere around the world by the U.S. military, while here at home, ostensibly while they're out there defending our freedoms, our freedoms are being squeezed out of us bit by bit. I mean, can anybody with a straight face make the case, that, oh, yeah, no, we're more free today than we ever were? We're not. We are more surveilled. We are more suspected. I mean, for crying out loud, you know, the Biden administration, the FBI under the Biden administration has come right out and said, oh, yeah. Maga supporters or Trump supporters are suspected as enemies of the state. There's millions, tens of millions, maybe 70 million people who voted for Trump. Well, they might they might be enemies of the state. So. Just keep that in mind when, when you hear, you know, talk about how well anything is justified, you know, either in Israel's response or you'll hear people on the Palestinian side saying anything is, is justifiable because of what Israel has done to the Palestinians over the years. Okay, I'm not going to hash out that battle. The one place, the one, the one thing I will tell you, just, just so you understand, I'm not uh, just saying, ah, well, I'm above it all and I, I don't, uh, you know, I don't want to take a side. I'm saying I've looked at both sides and there is plenty of hatred, anger, and wrongdoing on both sides. Now unfortunately, we have a, a kind of climate where so much as criticism of the Israeli regime is is equated with anti-Semitism. It's not. They're not the same thing. You can be a you know proud supporter of, of God's you know people, Israel, the tribe of Israel. You can be a supporter of the Jews and still recognize that uh, somewhere along the way, the Israeli government, probably, you know, from the experience of what happened during World War II, they they discovered that, uh, you know what, we're better off acting like Germans than we are acting like Jews. I'm sorry if that sounds harsh. Charlie Reese is actually the one who who came up with that phrase. But if you look at how the Israeli government uh, operates and particularly how it treats those that it perceives as a threat... It's uh, it's not hard to see that that's that's a pretty apt analogy. Now, none of this justifies the bloodshed and the anger and, you know, the the um, treachery that was taking place over the weekend, but it's being used to keep us stirred up as as the uh, the good citizen puts it. It's the, the current thing, the new current thing. This is the thing that's getting our attention. Nobody's paying attention to Ukraine now. Notice how that dropped off the radar screen? No, this is, this is where everybody's attention is. And you're starting to see flags pop up in people's avatars. Oh, look, I'm doing my part. You know, All I'm asking you to do is pay attention to when you're being manipulated and understand that there is hardcore manipulation going on here. Look, the very same people... Who lied to you about COVID, who lied to you about weapons of mass destruction and into a war in Iraq? They're now telling us the truth about what's happening, you know, in, in Israel and Gaza. And No, they're not. And you start to hear that binary thinking. Well, if you're not if you're against Israel, you're for Hamas. No. And so if I need to be more clear as far as, you know, well, where exactly do you land on this? You know, as if you've got to choose a side. And that's part of the PSYOP. Everybody has to choose a side. Not if they're both wrong. You don't. I like how my friend Connor Boyack put it. What's my position on this? Very simple. I renounce war and I proclaim peace. Because the people who are pushing for war have something to gain from it. And that's true on all sides. Can you not see that? And the more people get caught up, I mean, for crying out loud, there were clashes in the streets in America yesterday with pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli demonstrators out there duking it out. Can you not see how this is being used to divide people and to keep us at each other's throats while the people who are going to profit from this conflict are just sitting back laughing? Don't be a dupe. Question it all. And
0: when in doubt, I think it's pretty safe to renounce war and proclaim peace. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Now that I have thoroughly
1: offended and... uh, (laughs) And uh, pushed everybody to the margins here and made him think, okay, he's absolutely nuts. Well, let's get on with the show and we'll talk about uh, some of the things happening around us. In fact, here's a question that you're likely to encounter on a regular basis. Is censorship justified if enough people consider an opinion to be erroneous? This is a question asked by Barry Brownstein. Is censorship justified when a strong consensus considers an opinion erroneous? Now, we definitely saw that at play during covid this applies to a lot of other areas as well. He has an article called, Are We Choosing Living Truth or Dead Dogma? This is from his Mind Shifts Substack. Again, I would encourage you, take a look at it, subscribe, if if, if you like, because uh, Barry's got some great information here. He says, Is freedom of speech necessary to promote human progress even when others consider your opinions offensive? And he asks, What will happen when the norm of Western civilization, tolerance for competing ideas, disappears. John Stuart Mill had a lot to say about those questions in of, of the Liberty of Thought and Discussion, chapter two of his, of his 1859 classic, On Liberty. So while the ranks of illiberal censors grow daily, Mill's impeccable logic reaches across time to refute arguments censors use to justify their authoritarian actions. Now, before we get into the body of Mill's arguments, an example from his era is instructive. The first direct mail campaign in the United States dates to 1835 when the American Anti-Slavery Society sent sacks of abolitionist mail to Charleston, South Carolina. An angry mob burned the first delivery of that mail after Charleston's postmaster, Alfred Huger, called it incendiary and didn't deliver it. Huger asked for directions from Postmaster General Amos Kendall, who ruled that not delivering the mail for the good of the community was patriotic and trumped federal mail law. Now, if the interest of the community argument for censorship sounds familiar, it should. Google censors make the very same argument today. In a letter to Kendall, President Andrew Jackson argued the abolitionists deserve to atone for this wicked attempt to excite with their lives. Hugel, or or Huger, rather Kendall and President Jackson were on the wrong side of history and morality, but they were sure they were right. And Barry Brownstein says today's authoritarians have expanded the justification for censorship to malinformation. In other words, genuine information that is shared to cause harm. Too much truth, I guess, is another way to put it. Some might scoff and agree that although yesterday's censorship was wrong, we have grown wiser, and today's censorship is truly for the good of the community. Well, Mill observed the majority of the eminent men of every past generation held many opinions now known to be erroneous, and they did or approved numerous things which no one will now justify. You understand what he's saying? They had their blind spots. Mill was clear that the majority's opinion may not be wise or moral. He wrote, Protection against the tyranny of the magistrate is not enough. Their needs Protection also against the tyranny of the prevailing opinion and feeling. Mill explained why, saying all silencing of discussion is an assumption of the infallibility of authoritarian censors. The opinion which it is expressed, which it is attempted rather to suppress by authority, may possibly be true. Those who desire to suppress it, of course, deny its truth, but they're not infallible. To refuse a hearing to an opinion because they are sure that it's false is to assume that their certainty is the same thing as absolute certainty. And Barry Brownstein writes, your right to expression doesn't end, even if you are a minority of one. Mill wrote, if all mankind minus one were of one opinion and only one person were of the contrary opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person then he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. Mill anticipated today's arguments that censorship is justified because there are certain beliefs, so useful not to say indispensable to well-being, that it is as much as the duty of governments to uphold those beliefs as to protect any other of the interests of society. And Barry Brownstein asks, how often have authorities, experts, and social media companies used that argument during the pandemic to suppress the speech of medical dissidents and dogmatically insist they were the keepers of truth. He says it is necessary, Mill advised, that our opinions be fully, frequently, and fearlessly discussed, or we will become keepers of dead dogma and not explorers of a living truth. So censorship does not protect the public, but it does block challenges to orthodox opinions. When we presume an opinion to be true, we deter people from seeking the truth. Or uncovering errors. Mill argued men are not more zealous for truth than they often are for error, and a sufficient application of legal or even social penalties will generally succeed in stopping the propagation of either. Man, these are some great quotes. Canceling people has far reaching consequences. Barry Brownstein writes today, out of fear and pressure, and peer pressure rather, some professionals clap for policies they secretly question. Mill understood this when he warned the greatest harm done is to those who are not heretics and whose whole mental development is cramped and their reason cowed by the fear of heresy. Mill asked who can compute what the world loses in the multitude of promising intellects combined with timid characters combined with timid characters rather who do not follow out of who do not follow out any bold vigorous independent train of thought. Sadly, that describes a lot of people today. Berry says, Human flourishing is at stake. Mill warned, Where there is a tacit convention that principles are not to be disputed, where the discussion of the greatest questions which can occupy humanity is considered to be closed, we cannot hope to find that generally high scale of mental activity which has made some periods of history so remarkable. Free expression of ideas is the path to human flourishing. Today's misplaced certainty is dissolved by progress. Because Mill recognized a person's capacity as an intellectual or as a moral being to learn through discussion and experience, he believed errors are correctable in a social progress process. Rather, Yet Mill understood confirmation bias well before psychologists named the human tendency to turn our back on evidence that contradicts our beliefs and opinions. With awareness of this tendency... Mill argued we can counter our bias by exposing our ideas to opposing views. Notice Mill's simple safe, safeguard against stubbornly advancing an erroneous opinion. Quote, complete liberty of contradicting and disproving our opinion is the very condition which justifies us in assuming its truth for purposes of action. And on no other terms can a, can a being with human faculties have any rational assurance of being right. In other words, you've got to prove it out. It needs to be tested. To maintain liberty, each of us is responsible for thinking for ourselves. Mill advised, truth gains even more by the errors of one who, with due study and preparation, thinks for himself than by the true opinions of those who only hold them because they do not suffer themselves to think. Now Mill has clear guidelines for becoming a person deserving of confidence. We must keep our minds open to criticism of our opinions and conduct. Mill argued there was no other pathway for uncovering errors. So, by Mill's clear standard, authoritarians such as the thin-skinned Dr. Fauci, who proclaimed that criticism of him is an attack on science, are not to be trusted. Recently, citing his lies and suppression of critics, Matt Taibbi called Fauci America's warm-up dictator. But Barry Brownstein says, let's not let ourselves off the hook. Out of fear, millions worshipped Fauci, thus empowering him. Mill would say, you are naive if you believe errors can be quickly corrected and progress restored, even with illiberal censorship. He wrote, history teems with instances of truth put down by persecution. If not suppressed forever, it may be thrown back for centuries. However, Mill believed truth can never be fully extinguished and will reappear when people regain courage and more liberal attitudes reemerge. But why wait centuries? Barry says the acts of courage needed then will be the same as they are today. Today's censors with feet of clay depend on your acquiescence to having them shape your views. But he says you can withdraw your consent today. I love that. What a perfect message. It's not only inviting you to think for yourself, but, but be okay with people questioning your opinions. Be willing to put them to the test. Be open to the idea that I may be wrong on this. And when new truth comes into your life, adjust your thinking accordingly. But above
0: all, do not give your consent to those who tell you this is what you must believe. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Let's take a quick look
1: at what has happened to parental authority. Now, I, you know, I've seen a couple of different instances where, you know, the classroom is where uh, parental authority is being undermined, you know, where teachers are, "Hey kids, if you aren't sure, you know, what your, uh, you know, what what your gender is, well, maybe uh, you can just keep a secret with me and, you know, we'll keep mom and dad out of this and, you know, it it'll just be our secret. We'll make sure that uh, that none of this is is uh, you know, going to get to mom and dad so they can spoil your fun. Okay, that's one example of it. But there's an even more disturbing collapse of, a, of parental authority, and that's parental authority in the home. And I've got a great article here from Annie Holmquist from intellectualtakeout.org that, uh, that addresses this. She asks, what caused the collapse of parental authority? Now, she gives an example I think most of us can relate to because we've probably seen this out in public at one time or another. She says, you've been there, you're in the store, minding your own business, when suddenly you hear the angry screams of a child interspersed with, Johnny, get up off the floor this instant. I mean it, Johnny. By the time I count to three, Johnny, mommy will give you a cookie when we get to the car if you get up off the floor. Now, she says, unfortunately, such a scenario is all too real in a society which no longer seems to value parental authority. In fact, parental authority seems to have all but disappeared in many families. Instead, children are given the velvet glove treatment, their desires must always be fulfilled, their whims never crossed. How did we arrive at such a state? Professor and author Christopher Lash offers an interesting answer to this question in the book, The Culture of Narcissism. In essence, one might say that the growth of our feelings-oriented culture is a main culprit. Here's a quote from there. According to Jules, Henry, and other observers of American culture, the collapse of parental authority reflects the collapse of ancient impulse controls and the shift from a society in which superego values, in other words, the values of self-restraint, were ascendant to one in which more and more recognition was was being given to the values of the id, in other words, the values of self-indulgence. Now, as Lash goes on to explain, the increasing value we've placed on feelings and self-indulgence has handcuffed parents in dealings with their children. Instead of laying down the law and teaching their children restraint, American parents find it easier to achieve conformity by the use of bribery than by facing the emotional turmoil of suppressing the child's demands. Unfortunately, such a tactic tactic rather has severe consequences. In this way, they undermine the child's initiative and make it impossible for him to develop self-restraint or self-discipline. The decline of parental authority reflects the decline of the superego in American society as a whole. It's been a few years since I took uh, psychology in college, but might wanna, we may want to brush up on this a little bit just to you know, make sure that we're, we're still understanding what the id and the superego and all those things are. Annie Holmquist asks, or says rather, many parents, teachers, and public figures have come to recognize how valuable it is for children to develop these same traits of initiative, self-restraint, and self-discipline. The question is, will we be able to foster these coveted traits in the next generation without the restoration of parental authority? And is it possible to restore parental authority when the current generation of parents was raised without it? Okay, that's a fair question. I mean, it's look, this is one of the places where, I guess we all have to learn this as we go, but if you have ever seen a situation where one parent indulges the kids and the other parent, you know, is, is the enforcer, it can get ugly quickly. Kids can learn to disrespect their parents, especially if one parent is showing disrespect for the other. I mean, I was joking around. <laughs> with a friend, uh, he'd send me a, a video and it's, you know, a, a kid mouthing off, blah, 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 blah you know, just being very sassy to a parent. And then you see the, the video shift, like it's from the kid's point of view, opening their eyes, like they're awakening from, from a coma. And grandma's like, oh, there you are. You're awake now. Remember, we don't talk that way to parents. <laughs> and I know it's people who are like, Brian, well, it's never okay to hit a kid. But I'm telling you, if you mouthed off especially to your mom, you were probably going to catch some kind of a correction. And it was sometimes upside the head, sometimes it was right on the end of your nose, sometimes it was across, uh, you know, a backhand across your face. But there were some clear lines drawn. And really, I can honestly say the only time my dad ever, you know, really put me in my place was one day I was just talking to my mom just as snotty as could be about 15 years old and just being extremely disrespectful. You know, he only had to do that once. It was a lesson I learned very quickly and realized, okay, that line we don't cross. In fact, we don't even approach that line because it was clear my parents were working as a team. I know you'll, people can disagree. Well, you know, all he did was teach you that violence is the answer. And I'm just like, okay. I was the one who was out of line and and, and maybe we have better means of parenting. I don't know. As I look around and I see what some of the kids are struggling with and I see the collapse of parental authority, I'm not so sure that maybe some of the earlier generations didn't have a better approach. And that's not to say that I enjoyed getting spankings or that I enjoyed, you know, catching a whack across the face for, for speaking out of turn. That was not pleasant. But at the same time, I'm not going to pretend like, but, uh, you know, it had no positive effect. It did have a positive effect in the sense that the boundaries were clearly established. I know it's, it's, it's a, I'm probably opening a can of worms here that's going to really get some people upset. Some people believe, look, violence is never the answer. You can just, you know, you can figure out other ways to make things happen. And with some kids, that's possible. With other kids, sometimes a, a physical correction is necessary. Now, can it be taken to extremes? Yes, it can. And I don't condone that. I'm pretty sure that my dad's generation was raised with, uh, you know, a very applied spare the rod, spoil the child kind of mentality. You did not get out of line. You did not rebel and you didn't push back against your folks without facing, not just, you know, a stern admonition and, you know, a reduction of privileges, but you'd get the snot beat out of you if, if you were, were out of line. And, What's crazy is other adults would do that if it was bad enough. You know, someone could would correct you and then send you home to your parents where you'd get it all over again if you were out of line. I know I'm walking a fine line here and I don't want to try to make it sound like, well, are you trying to glorify, you know, uh, violence? I'm really not. At the same time, I believe that when someone was at risk of getting knocked on their butt for being vulgar and provocative or just abusive to people in public, people really weren't, uh, They a lot of people wouldn't take that risk. But now everything's a police matter. I mean, for crying out loud, you go to jail, you lose your right to, to own guns for a simple fist fight. I don't think that's right. This is one of the reasons I believe it's, it's, I think it's a good idea to get kids involved in some kind of martial art as early as possible. And it's not because that way they know how to protect themselves against bullies. That is good, and that's true. But the beauty of getting them involved, and I don't care what it is, I don't care if it's karate or taekwondo or Brazilian jiu-jitsu or boxing, whatever it is, a person cannot really understand when violence is appropriate until they have been on the receiving end of it. Until you've taken a good hard punch to the face, you really can't appreciate what it's like. And I'm not saying that that's the only way to make somebody better, but, you know, a person who's been on the receiving end of a good hard punch to the nose will think twice before they administer it to somebody else because they know what it's like. I think this is some of the same reasoning behind, you know, when police officers are given pepper spray. You know they're required. Well, you got to take a faceful of it before we let you carry this on your duty belt, and you go out there to serve the public. You need to understand what it's going to be like when you unleash this on somebody, because otherwise they might be tempted to be a little too quick to bring it into to play. By the way, the cops I've talked to (laughs) who've undergone that have said that was one of the most miserable experiences ever. In fact, I had one friend who said, you know, um," he says I've never I've never had that kind of pain on my face before, and he says, as crazy as it sounds, he says, I just wanted to run. I couldn't see, but I just wanted to run. Like somehow, if I can run fast enough, maybe I can outrun the pain. But bringing this around full circle, I still believe love is the best possible motivator, especially as a parent. And I would hold up, for an example, my my wife's grandfather I don't think she ever heard him raise his voice. I certainly never heard him raise his voice. He was always very kind and gentle. But his kids were very well-behaved. Not perfect, but very well-behaved. And one of the reasons they were well-behaved is they loved him and they knew he loved them and they didn't want to disappoint him. It wasn't like he wielded disappointment like a weapon. It was more like they just loved him enough that they did—they wouldn't want to see that kind of disappointment. I don't know if that makes sense. And I wish you the best in whatever your you know, parenting or grandparenting uh, challenges may be. But we need parental authority.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Brian Hyde show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm going to
1: confess something. I feel like I am fighting an uphill battle today. I don't know if I just, you know, rolled out of the wrong side of the bed or what, but, man, pretty much anything that can go wrong is, is going wrong. I'm, I have technical issues on the fly as I'm, I'm doing the show. Uh, car problems. I mean, it's just, it's interesting. Maybe that uh, that big shift I was talking about in the world. Maybe it was just more on a personal level. I don't know. The stars aligned and said, "Hey, uh, it's time time to get hide." So, if that's the case, I guess I'll just I'll deal with it as it comes. But holy cow, I feel like I am scrambling to keep my head above water today. All right, couple things to touch on here in the closing moments of the show. These this is the last segment. I, saw, I thought, saw this article by Robert Weisberg on AmericanThinker.com. Really grabbed my attention because he zeroed in on something that uh, I think a lot of us have noticed. But we're just not sure how to how to quantify this. And that is punishing hate, but not criminals. He says, America appears to be a society with fewer and fewer laws, or at least not enforcing those that remain on the books. Now, I don't agree with all of his stuff. We've decriminalized recreational drugs I'm of the opinion they never should have been criminalized in the first place. I think it should all be legal. You hold people accountable for their actual behavior. Any harm that they do, strictly hold them accountable. But I think we need to go back to the pre-1914 standards where, yeah, it's all available. But it's on you if you screw around and get yourself addicted or if you screw around and you harm somebody else. Just the same way we we treat, uh, you know, drunk driving. Nonetheless, he says that we've reduced felonies into minor misdemeanors while ignoring open looting and rioting, save in certain politically charged circumstances. Now, that part I agree with. It's crazy. I went to a Home Depot over the weekend looking to purchase a tool. Everything's locked up like under padlock now. I wonder why that is. Well, I can tell you why. We've seen the videos, people going in and, you know, loading up a shopping cart and just walking out with it. Of course, the employees are under instructions now. Don't try to stop them. That would be bad. That would, you know, that would be provocative or somehow a bad thing. Terrible. Cities have downsized their police departments while no longer prosecuting quality of life offenses like public urination. You know, watch your step as you're, you know, uh, <laughs> moving around San Francisco. Filth and open drug markets are now tolerated as just part of urban life. I think one of the craziest things I've seen are the videos of these. Uh, Car thief gangs that are going through, and sometimes even in front of the police, just driving down the street, stopping, bashing the windows out of cars, scooping out whatever is available, whatever they can find. Some people leave their cars wide open, right? Tailgate up, windows open, doors open. There's nothing here to steal so they don't get their windows bashed out. Yeah, it's very, very lawless. And here Robert Weisberg says, the criminal code has obviously been eviscerated, but the impetus for greater criminalization is gaining momentum elsewhere. And he's right. This new focus on crime centers on hate as the paramount evil facing society. Property crime, well, that's no big deal. That's just you know, it's reparations or whatever. But now, bad thinking apart from actual behavior becomes the target of law enforcement. So, criticize Islam's treatment of women? They'll be called, you'll be called Islamophobic. Defending it makes you a sexist. For some, misgendering a trans person is now hate speech. Countless colleges now enact speech codes to shield students from psychological harm. In fact, such hate, not behavior, has been characterized as a poison that psychologically debilitates its victims, causing high blood pressure and drug addiction. We now enforce laws against what Orwell called thought crime. So to use an extreme but hardly inconceivable possibility, a local progressive district attorney would likely dismiss charges against those robbing a 7-Eleven convenience store or at least reduce the offense to a minor infraction without jail time. But if the clerk shadows a young black who enters the store, well, that's racial profiling, or waves around a baseball bat, he might be accused of race-based hatred. Thus, at least for the progressive DA, the clerk, not the would-be miscreants, would be punished. And this would occur even if the clerk did not physically injure the would-be thief or bar him from entering the store. In fact, woe to the clerk if he shoots that would-be black shoplifter in self-defense. The victim, or shopkeeper, now becomes the criminal while the shoplifter is transformed into the victim thanks to hate crime laws. It is. It's a total inversion of reality. In addition, he says what defines hate is not actions per se. Everything depends on the identities of those involved. So a simple mugging can radically change its meaning depending on who's the assailant and who's the victim. Hate becomes central when people belonging to certain protected classes are involved according to their appearances and personal identities. Though protected class status can be ambiguous, it's generally interpreted to include women, People of color, blacks, Hispanics, Asians, and Native Americans, the physically disabled, and groups who have historically been stigmatized for their sexual preferences. Members of religious groups with distinctive forms of dress, for example, Muslims and Hasidic Jews, might be included. In the above hypothetical, the situation would be totally reversed if the would-be criminal were a rich white male and the clerk a black lesbian. Note that existing anti-hate laws have no provision for a crime committed against whites due to hatred of whites, though such animus surely exists. So our legal code labels criminals according to the crimes they commit. So we have murderers and arsonists, but in a hate-based crime, labels apply to the perpetrators, for example. The homophobes, white supremacists, transphobes, sexists, and of course, the most terrible accusation of all, racist. The nature of the crime is thus defined by the wrongdoer's motive. So all those verbally abusing someone who is gay are guilty of homophobia, whereas the exact same abuse would be classified as racist if directed at a black person. That's the equivalent of classifying murder according to who was killed as opposed to the act itself. So in the same way that murder can be committed with any number of weapons, a multitude of ways exist to to inflict hate. These can range from verbal remarks, for example, telling a gay person that homosexuals are mentally ill, to merely stating a statistical fact that blacks disproportionately commit crime. In both instances, the statements inflict discomfort on the victim and thus are classified as hate. Tellingly, even the most innocuous statements can be hateful since everything depends on the personal interpretation of those in the protected group, not necessarily what the hater intends. Multi-billionaire Kenneth Griffin's son was reprimanded at his school for saying that an Asian classmate was good at math. Now, the compliment was deemed offensive stereotyping, but truth was irrelevant. These inadvertent, seemingly harmless remarks are called, remarks are called microaggressions, and they're judged a form of hate. And it can also be expressed through inanimate objects, the battle flag of the Confederacy, now widely banned as a symbol of hate since it allegedly glorifies a political order that brutalized African-Americana and thus will trigger painful reactions among today's blacks. Meanwhile, college campuses abound with anti-hate campaigns that demand shouting down offensive speakers, creating anti-bias squads to spy on students, uttering derogatory remarks about those in protected groups, and scrutinizing syllabi for offensive language. He says the criminalization of hate is far more than quibbling over words and symbols. There are real consequences. In 2021, the Department of Justice recorded a total of 7,262 hate crimes, involving 8,673 offenses, the vast majority of which involved race or ethnicity. Now, according to the DOJ's official website, the object of hatefulness can depend on the victim's race, color, religion, national origin, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity, or disability. In practice... This increases the odds that almost any physical attack risks becoming a hate crime. But how can a would-be mugger know that his victim is protected by an anti-hate law? Might an assailant ask, are you Asian? Prior to pushing him off a subway platform to avoid violating a hate crime law. Worse, 47 states criminalize hate, each having its own definition of who is protected by anti-hate laws. So this newfound focus on criminalizing hate is surely ill-advised when violent crimes are soaring. The opportunity costs are immense, and in many instances the alarmism is almost entirely a fundraising strategy where innocent incidents are interpreted as if they were physical assaults. But the most serious harm is transforming the criminal justice system into an instrument to stamp out bad thinking. Aversion to people who are different is human nature, and criminalizing this deeply rooted impulse apart from any harmful behavior is a step toward totalitarian mind control. It's a fool's errand. It's a return to an earlier era when religious zealots sought to eliminate heresies by outlawing dissenting faiths, even killing and torturing non-believers. Today, we try to stamp out racism or homophobia as if merely thinking bad thoughts in and of itself harm society. Police departments now subject officers to expensive anti-bias training to expunge such thoughts despite lacking funds to hire desperately needed new recruits. But prosecutors aren't mind readers, but this skill is vital to obtaining a hate crime conviction. Can the hurt feelings of the victim justify conviction? Nor will labeling some act a hate crime protect anybody, regardless of skin color or sexual orientation, from physical harm. Few criminals have any idea who, exactly, is in countless protected classes, and nor do most care. Unfortunately, we ignore crimes that grievously hurt people or damage property while fixating on mental states that harm nobody other than the most thin-skinned person in certain protected groups. Yeah, he
0: says it well. This is destructive madness. This is The Brian Hyde Show.